relief factor, pain relief that's natural, pain relief that works, and pain relief that attacks the source of the pain. That's the experience of tens of thousands of Americans who are taking Relief Factor right now. See their incredible video endorsements at relieffactor.com and then order your three-week quick starter pack for just $19.95. That's less than a dollar a day. Find out if it can work for you like it works for me by ordering your three-week quick starter pack today. Relieffactor.com, relieffactor.com. Be the next success story. Going deeper on the big issues that matter to you. This is your exclusive podcast, America First, one-on-one, with me, Sebastian Gorka, former strategist to President Donald J. Trump. Welcome, dear friends, to America First, one-on-one, where we have the opportunity to sit down with one of our good friends, regular guests, or new guests to America First, get to know them a little bit better, and also drill down on the key issues of the day. Uh, Today's interviewee is somebody who shouldn't need any introduction. He's been fighting swamp creatures valiantly uh, for years and years here in the stinking cesspit that is Washington, D.C. He is the director of research, director of investigations for the incredible people at Judicial Watch, an organization you should be supporting. Chris Farrell, welcome to America First one-on-one. Great to be with you. Thank you, Sam. We could spend hours with you talking about just your day job. That's true. However, you surprised me walking into the studio uh, before my vacation with a book that you have written that we shall discuss because it's it's a fascinating real-life espionage grand strategy thriller. But the key message is, I'm a couple of chapters in and I've already, already identified that the key messages or messages a message are so relevant to the predicament we find ourselves in today as, as lovers of the Republic. So yep. we'll talk about exiled emissary uh, later in the hour. But first things first, for those who've just accidentally hopped on this channel, received this video link from a buddy or what have you, share a little bit about yourself. Who is Chris Farrell? What is his professional background? Where does he hail from? And how did you end up at Judicial Watch? Sure. So for the last 22 years, I've been the Director of Investigations and Research at Judicial Watch. You must have started like when you're 10 or something, <laughs> right? Because right? you don't right. look old enough. That's right. Um, so 22 years later, and it's, it's amazing when I think that. Even when I say that, it strikes me. Uh, so a long career at Judicial Watch. Uh, I've been a member of the Board of Directors since 2003. So most of the time there as a fiduciary of the corporation. Um, And we do a lot of stuff. Judicial Watch is a government watchdog. We look at government corruption. We sue government officials. Whoever is in government. True. Uh, We're equal opportunity offenders. We've we've sued Republicans and Democrats alike. Uh, But what we're trying to do is get accountability and and some sense of integrity in in government and, and, and law and politics. And so we've been doing that a long time. Uh, the organization's been around for 27 years. I've been there for 22 of the 27. Um, my colleague, Tom Fitton, who you see often on media present broadcasts of various types, you see often. And then our third director is a guy named Paul Orfanides, who's our head attorney. We have a staff of about 50 offices around the country. Most everybody's here in D.C., but we're sprinkled around. Uh, so our watchdog group, we get tons of government records and documents. We make very aggressive use of the open records law. The Freedom of Information Act. Uh, correct. And, so and at the state level, likewise, the mirroring em- uh, laws that allow for access to government records and documents. And that's uh, that's what we spend a lot of our time doing and holding officials accountable and uh, and suing folks. We have other big, big projects, things like uh, an election 
uh, program we've been doing now for something like 12 years where we've forced various states to clean up their voter rolls. So get the dead people, the people who've moved out off the voter rolls, correct? We've been doing this for years and years and years. Before it was cool, we've been doing this. Um, We've been doing it. We've forced Los Angeles County uh, to remove 1.5 million people off their voting rolls who were not eligible, not not real, not even alive citizens. Um, So we've had a great success across the country doing that. We do things like we take all the financial disclosure forms of every federal judge in the country and make them public. Wow. Um, We represent whistleblowers. Uh, We've represented folks in in government who have tried to do the right thing, who have had their heads chopped off. And, of course, a lot of times with whistleblowers, you're really dealing with damaged goods. These are people who have tried to do the right thing. They've gotten nailed. They've had their lives turned upside down. Uh, the government tries to make them crazy, literally. It's a Stalinist technique, really. It's gaslighting. It is. And then everyone wonders, well, gee, why is this person acting so peculiarly? Well, because they've had their life ripped apart in front of them. And, look, the process is the punishment. They like to grind people up in the machine along the way. Can I give an example? Tell me if I'm wrong here. Sure. But after Benghazi, some of the contractors that survived who had government clearances, which were essential to their livelihoods, right. were polygraphed every month with that sort of Damocles over right. their heads saying, oh, if you fail, you're going to lose your clearance. I right. mean, that's one way to do it, is it not? Sure, absolutely. And in fact, as somebody who has used polygraph in my earlier life. We'll before- talk about that. Before Judicial Watch, I was a counterintelligence officer in the Army, ran double agent operations, did a lot of counterespionage work. And I would use polygraph as a control technique, as a tool. Uh, and so there's a legitimate application On of bank polygraph. To, to rattle people. Right. And so, and so it's a technique, right? That's why it's not admissible in court, <laughs> because it's a technique. It's a stress inducer. It is. And so one of the things you do to sort of check or control or double check someone is use polygraph. Now, you can do it legitimately or you can do it maliciously, right. and very often it's done maliciously, quite frankly, uh, because, you know, the, the, the big government, capital G, doesn't like people who uh, pop up on the radar screen like you just discussed and have dared to tell the truth. So they're sort of legally tortured by things like polygraph. All right, so um, that is what you've been doing for 22 years at right. Judicial Watch. Let's talk uh, about what you did before that as much as you can in, sure. a, in a low-class situation. So uh, you joined the Army? I did. I graduated from Fordham University in the lovely Bronx, New York, as a distinguished military graduate with a history degree, and so I became a... To so ROTC? I did, but as a regular Army commissionee um, and uh, became a military intelligence officer specializing in counterintelligence and human intelligence, I did all the things the lieutenant's supposed to do. Let's stop here for sure. those who don't live in the swamp, right. don't have clearances. Explain the difference between intelligence and counterintelligence. What does a counterintelligence sure. officer do? So there's all different flavors of intelligence. There's signals intelligence. There's imagery intelligence, counterintelligence, all these different flavors of int of intelligence. And so counterintelligence officers look to identify and stop espionage being conducted against the, the United States. And it could be all different types of espionage efforts. They could be human intelligence. They could be sort of some sort of technical penetration. There's all different ways. So stopping our enemies. From getting our Getting our Getting our stuff, right? right? right. And uh, so as a lieutenant, I did all the things you're supposed to do as a lieutenant. I was a platoon leader and an S2. And I ran around 3rd Armored Division in Germany. And, uh, you know, we never ended up fighting World War III in the Fulda Gap. But that's where I was hanging out doing that, ready for it. 
then I went over into more of a plainclothes job, and I did counter-espionage investigations and uh, double-agent operations. And I did that uh, both as an openly assigned officer uh, to a couple of different jobs, but then I also became something called a military intelligence accepted career program officer or great skills officer. And so you're kind of taken off of the Army roster and you're handled separately and you only do operational-type jobs and activities. And For I mean, other agencies? Are you a loner? Uh, no. So, you, I mean, well, you can be. I, I, along the way, I was also cross-trained uh, at the uh, at the farm. Uh, CIA is training facility. Correct. And so that's another aspect of my career is I received training to be human intel- a clandestine human intelligence case officer. Which means running sources, right. running, running human running, assets. Right. Running, essentially finding people to spy for the United States. Right. So I, I did a – most of my effort was at counterespionage, but sort of the photographic negative of that is also having people spy on behalf of the United States. And the, the case officers, the intelligence officers – who run those people are called clandestine uh, intelligence case officers. Um, let me kind of just jump in here straight away. Sure. Um, we'll talk about traditional watch more. We're going to talk about your book. But does can I just be really provocative? Does America even do counterintelligence anymore? It's a pathetic state of affairs okay. currently. Okay, uh, I, I, I still have friends in that world. Um, and uh, it's a it is a hollow shell of what it once was, and uh, you know it's just it is nothing like it was, and nothing like it should be. Should be, um, and is that a function of lack of leadership? Yes, lack of skill. Uh, it's, a, it's, craft? A, it's a leadership failure, is what it really boils down to. I know that there are very dedicated, serious, professional folks who want to do the right thing. And they're hung up in all kinds of never-never land, crazy, you know... Politically correct. Uh, domestic violent extremism, critical race theory, let's tear ourselves apart and invent problems that don't exist when there are actual real-life bad guys of all different flavors and stripes yeah. uh, who are trying to eat our lunch, trying to steal our secrets. Some are very obvious, you know, surprise, surprise, the Chinese want all, all our technology... Some are a little more subtle, <laughs> uh, folks that you might think would be our friends who really aren't our friends. Uh, in fact, I can remember very clearly sitting in a classroom at the farm and a former chief of station, multiple chief of station, civilian CIA employee training the military case officers, looked around the room and said, we have no friends. <laughs> Only interest. And then people would raise their hand and say, what about the Brits? What about uh, the Israelis? What about the Canadians? What about... And he kept looking at her and saying, we have no <laughs> friends. Have- we have occasional alliances that are of mutual right. interest. But we have – and everyone's trying to steal everybody else's stuff. It's just a fact. And we, to think otherwise is naive. We have liaison services. Yes. We have people we work with now and again. And apart from that, we have national interests. We're talking to the head of investigations, head of research for that superb organization, Judicial Watch. Please support them today, judicialwatch.org. I'm Sebastian Gorka. This is America First live streaming uh, not on Facebook because they banned us yesterday, but check out rumble.com slash G-O-R-K-A. Um, before we get to your book, Chris, let me just, because I, I, it was remiss of me not to mention it previously, will you talk to us about 
um, at least some of the big things that you have broken? What is the connection between Judicial Watch and the uh, infamous Hillary Clinton email server? Yeah, the only reason you know about the Hillary Clinton email server is because Judicial Watch had filed lawsuits. And actually, the roots of it begin in Benghazi. Right. Uh, where we had asked all sorts of questions of all sorts of agencies about what was going on in Benghazi, trying to unravel that. And to make it a long story short, we found the hole in the donut, right? So we had all these communications from all the people that you might imagine, furiously communicating about what was going on, who was responding. At, at the annex, at the consulate. All sorts of details. Right. Ignore, but there was something conspicuously absent, and that was nothing to or from Hillary Clinton. Wow. So, the, all so the, the other cast of characters, silence. correct? All the other cast of characters right. are very busy communicating, but there's a hole in the donut. Well, what is it? Well, she's not present in any of the. And then we had litigated over this in court. The government swore they gave us everything. Ten months go by. The State Department comes to us very sheepishly and says, "Well, we found another universe of documents." And we said, "Well, what does that mean?" And that was, in fact, that she had been running her own outlaw email server. And all this, loads of communications had gone across the server, including 22 top secret SCI, sensitive compartment of information, code word material, had gone across the server. Uh, and can, can, can we just sure. stop, drill down on this for a second? You know, as somebody who's worked in that field, has, has his clearances to this day, the systems are designed physically designed so you can't transport messages off a secure net onto a private server you can't plug in a thumb drive and do this so whoever did it for her it is a conscious effort it's not an accident you don't slip a tssci code word communicate you have to cut and paste you have to physically Uh, know worse than cut you can't cut and paste you've got to read right and then transpose, and then trans- excerpt and, and, and transcribe or, from that safe system, correct, onto an unsafe system. So, I mean, you, can't, you can't do by accident. Let, let's be very specific. So somebody was sitting at a JWix terminal. That's right. the acronym for for the system for, the, for the, the top secret end of the thing, and read an intelligence information report. And these are normally quite long, frankly. And it, 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 there's one paragraph that's important. The rest of it's a gobbledygook for the right. most part. And they found three little hypothetically. They found three little nuggets. That were very important. And, and so, they, they, for example, someone described the placement of trucks and people outside the gate of a compound. Right. Well, how is that de- derived, either from a human being who saw it, so human, human intelligence, or from imagery, from stuff way up in the sky or way down close? Right. Our <laughs> um, satellites, our UAVs. Right. And, right. and so someone has gotten very sensitive, detailed information about the placement of trucks and vehicles outside of a gate in front of a... Uh, a terrorist facility, let's say. And that's all super-duper classified. Well, somebody excerpts the pertinent nuggets out of that, and then hypothetically, someone like Huma Abedin would hypothetically sit on an iPad and type it all so, out. So, so that, let's be clear here. Yeah. Somebody like Huma Abedin would hypothetically take their phone or their iPad right. illegally into that secure facility, that skiff, where Correct. you're supposed to leave your electronics outside, outside. Yep. in a lockbox, goes in, read the JWIX terminal, reads the classified reports, <laughs> 
transposes, writes the intelligence onto that iPad, takes it out of the secure skiff, and then sends it correct. to Hillary. Correct. correct. Is that, that the hypothetical? A, that is an excellent hypothetical. Okay, thank you. <laughs> right. And you guys worked this out. Correct. Correct. And so this was you know, revealed and exposed, and all sorts of people with political agenda, people like Jim Comey and others, you know, turned themselves inside out to say, hey, no big deal. Okay. And, and, of course, no one with half a brain would buy that. And who has paid a penalty for this? Not a single living, breathing, walking soul. Okay. If you, as a military uh, counterintelligence officer in the U.S. Army, or I, as a DOD civilian, or as a White House political appointee, if we had done that, where would we likely be today, Chris? Fort Leavenworth. We'd be yeah. in prison, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you'd done a fraction of that... You would have lost your clearance. You would have had all sorts of uh, legal problems, administrative problems. I mean, you would never practice your profession again. Okay. Let, let's talk about uh, professionalism. Let's talk about national security. I want to talk about your book. I want to talk about the swamp. But because we are witnessing, quote-unquote, uh, the uh, day before yesterday, the end of the war in Afghanistan, which is peculiar, Mr. CENTCOM General, because the last time I looked, wars end when your enemy surrenders or is crushed, not when you give them $80 billion worth of U.S. equipment. Um, Give us your take as a former military professional on what you have witnessed in the last 14 days in U.S. national security. Yeah, it's just shameful. I mean, I can't it, – it, it defies, I mean, real explanation. A lot's been written and said about it by all sorts of smart people. I just have a deep sense of, uh, of really shame. It's, uh, it's horrific. We have uh, spent, uh, you know, lives, treasure, um, and, you know – for what and 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 then the, it really the other the truly shameful part is all, none of this escaped anyone right every name your alphabet soup intelligence agency name anybody over at DOD they watched this wind up and come at us for months and officials went up in front of Congress and lied for months last spring they're saying oh well it's not entirely uh, given that you know the Afghan government will collapse and the Taliban may. What a bunch of lies. I mean, what is they've the, known this forever, and they watched it happen in slow motion. What is the – look, we, Democrats are Democrats. Politicians are politicians. Spin doctors are spin doctors. What is the culpability of the flag and general staff, uh, you know, the, the senior military and all yeah, of this? I mean, horrific. The, the, look, every single general officer, the three and four stars certainly, they're all Obama generals, first right. of all, right? Exactly. They were full colonels and one stars in the Obama era, and then right. in the last eight to 12 years, they've all – risen up through so they're all witness tested for supporting things like uh six foot four frank wearing a skirt and calling himself francine right Right. oh no problem with that right uh there's no billy mitchells anymore right they they don't exist so nobody who resigns on principle except for that that colonel that marine colonel this weekend yeah where are the generals who remind resign on principle chris yeah there's 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 no flag officers who have any uh guts or intestines or spine or whatever you want to call it. But, I mean, this is really horrific stuff. This is, like, national shame stuff. Yeah. And uh, it turns my stomach over. And uh, the lack of accountability, I mean, they're all heading for the door. They're going to get their retirement. They're going to go be corporate board advisors being paid six figures. Bellway Bandit. Yeah. Directors. I mean, it's just, it's, it's disgusting. 
And, uh, you know, I want him to walk through a VA hospital and tell everybody how it's really no big deal, you know? Yeah, wow, wow, wow. We're talking to Chris Farrell. Follow him and his colleagues at uh, Judicial Watch on Twitter. That's at Judicial Watch. Chris, uh, I'm so excited. You surprised me uh, recently uh, with a, 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 a an inscribed book, very, very kindly inscribed book. Uh, I, I wasn't expecting it. Uh, it is called Exiled Emissary, George H. Earl III, Soldier, Sailor, Diplomat, Governor, Spy. This thing that he was a governor, then a deputy attache blows my mind. Start with one. Why did you write this book? What compelled you? Yeah, so uh, my grandmother did. <laughs> right, right. In 1967, of all things. So, look, uh, my paternal, excuse me, my maternal grandfather was a founding member of the New York Coffer and Sugar Exchange. He was a commodities broker. And one of his chief clients was a guy who owned something called the Flamingo Sugar Mills. And that man was George Earl. And George Earl comes from a very long, old, prestigious American family. His great, 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 whatever uncle was Benjamin Franklin. Right. Um, enormously wealthy man, a, a mainline Philadelphia playboy. He loved wine, women, and song. He played polo. He flew his own plane. Uh, he took his uncle's yacht during World War I, turned it into a naval reserve vessel as a submarine chaser. It was out off the coast of New Jersey. As you do. Out off the coast of New Jersey <laughs> and, and Delaware hunting German submarines, and won the Navy Cross. That's the kind of guy we're talking about. Is I interviewed his 93-year-old son back in 2016. His 93-year-old son, who also happened to be an OSS officer in, oh the, my in, gosh. The, in the Pacific, and he said, my father would do any damn thing he pleased. <laughs> and he did. This guy actually was sort of a Trump before Trump. He didn't need a title or... Uh, and you know, he shooed it. Independently wealthy, did right. anything he damn well pleased. He actually broke from his family in 1932 and supported FDR. All of his family Republicans going all the way back. He had this sort of moral sense of, you know, kind of the, let's give the little guy a break kind of thing. And so wrote enormous checks to FDR to the Democratic Party, uh, which resulted in him getting an ambassadorship. He was our ambassador in Vienna from 33 to 35, which was a long time to be the ambassador mm -hmm. in Vienna with the Germans, the Nazis trying to push in. This is just before Anschluss. Right. Uh, a very diminutive little chancellor named Dollfuss, a very brave little man who was fighting both the communists and the Nazis simultaneously in Vienna. George Earl physically put himself out in street battles in Vienna to collect intelligence and report back to Washington. He made official Washington crazy because he would write things like, Unless I receive guidance by 12 to noon tomorrow, I intend on doing the following. <laughs> and he'd list all the action. That made Foggy Bottom, the State Department, crazy. And he didn't care. Right. Because he was personal friends with FDR. They had gone to Harvard together. He's independently wealthy. Has access to the president. He has, he's directly friends with the president right. and financed this campaign. And he himself has enormous personal wealth. He doesn't care that you don't like him. He's going to do what he thinks is right. And and in the big, I mean, it sounds very Trumpian, but in the big scheme of, of world history, geopolitics, you make some incredible claims yeah. about him and shortening World War II. Two so things. Two tell, things tell are us, stunning. Tell us why this person that most Americans have never heard of, 
why he's so crucial to understanding the history of World War II. He's an enormous threat to FDR and FDR's history, so right. he was canceled. He's the first guy to be canceled. So he's Trump before Trump, and he's canceled. He's sent off to exile, part of the title I'll explain in a moment. In January of 1943, early January, FDR meets with Churchill in Casablanca, and he kind of cavalierly off the cuff says, oh, by the way, the Germans must unconditionally surrender. No one knew this, except for FDR throws it off the cuff. This makes the German officer corps, the anti-Hitler resistance, the Widerstand, makes the German officer corps crazy because now because, it, because it backs him into a corner. Right, because they, they want to do what? Facilitate want, a collapse. Correct. But they can't guarantee a conditional surrender. Correct. And so what happens is in, in, in the third week of January 1943, just after the unconditional surrender demand at Casablanca, George Earl, now back in naval service, having been governor of Pennsylvania, (laughs) having been an ambassador ambassador again, now he's back in naval service as lieutenant commander, and he says to FDR, hey, send me over to be the attache in Istanbul. And FDR says, you are my personal emissary to the Balkans. And you are now the assistant naval attache, very thin diplomatic cover. It's just cover, cover right? It's Correct. just cover, right. And he, so he shows up in Istanbul. He's there about four days. He has an entire floor of a hotel because he's independently wealthy. He doesn't care. Right. So he takes the entire floor of the hotel. There's a knock on his door one evening, and standing before him is Admiral Wilhelm Canaris. Canaris. Chief of the German Abwehr, German military intelligence. Right. And Abwehr says to him, I know who you are, Mr. Earl, Governor Earl. Uh, and I know your connection to the president, and I know your unique status here in the neutral city of Istanbul. Uh, here's our proposition. <laughs> we will give you Hitler, dead or alive, and his inner circle. But we must have an armistice, and then we must turn around and attack the Soviet Union. So he's got this offer. What happens next? I want everybody to get the book exiled emissary George H. Earl III. So we've stopped at this moment. Canaris, Mr. Military Intelligence for the Germans, makes uh, a suggestion, an offer to the thinly veiled representative of the president. What happens next? Uh, Silence is what happens next. And Earl goes out of his mind because he cables this back two different ways to to FDR. And uh, he knows it's a for real offer because what happens is there's follow-up from the Germans, and the the German ambassador to Turkey at the time is a guy named von Papen, who was a very conservative Catholic. He was the last chancellor before Hitler, which is interesting. Hitler wanted to keep him in the game and keep him close, so he put him as an ambassador. Von Papen says, we're going to have a guy named Lersner communicate with Earl. They coordinate. They go down to the level of detail as to point of surrender, where the armistice would take place. What units would attack and seize Hitler? They had a down to level of detail. You know, the reason that this fails, everyone knows the movie with uh, Tom Cruise, uh, Valkyrie. Valkyrie, right. right. Valkyrie, Valkyrie right. and Count von Stauffenberg, that, that happened because the Earl mission failed. Failed, right, because they were desperate. Correct. They this had is, to kill Hitler that was the to last, knock him out. That was the last ditch effort because this approach by uh, Canaris to Earl 
failed. So FDR says Solid. nothing, or he says, take this up with state, which means uh, you're going to get the same answer. It's Just a, a circle. circle thing. He says, circle. if it happens again, bring it up with Eisenhower, because Eisenhower is not going to do anything. So why? Explain. Why does FDR not want to end the war? Yeah, well, because of the commitment to, to Stalin, right? I mean, here's the interesting thing. The, the, the United States supported all sorts of insurgencies and partisan efforts against the Germans. The only German, the only partisan group that never got any support were the anti-communist ones. Right. So the Widerstand, the, the group of Canaris and others, von Stauffenberg and others, uh, who were not just anti-Nazi but also anti-communist, FDR would not support them. Because that would be a threat to Stalin. Correct. To the global communist Correct. movement. And, and, when, and when you view this as, look, World War II starts off because of an unconditional war guarantee to yeah. the Poles right. between France and Germany. And so, okay, unconditional war guarantee, World War II starts, the Germans invade. Well, who, who invaded from the east? East. The Soviet Union invaded with Poland. With a secret pact with Germany. Correct. And right. so the, the, the initiators of the war, right, the, the people who wage war of aggression, Germany and the Soviet Union, World War II, World war II ends, and then, of course we have to have justice now, right, because of an unconditional war guaranteed to the Poles by the Germans and the Brits. Who gets Poland? Yeah. The people that invaded them get right. the Soviet Union, the Russians Stalin gets Poland. I, I want everybody to read Exiled Emissary, but just give a hint. What happens to this man who loved America, was loyal to the president? What does FDR do to him? Well, after he goes to FDR and says to him, uh, hey, listen, by the way, the Katyn Forest Massacre, where 22,000 Poles were slaughtered, the cream of Polish society. 20,000 plus. The intelligentsia, the university professors, the army officers, church leaders, they're machine gunned in the forest. Everyone wants to say the Nazis did it. They didn't. The Soviets did it. Earl goes, conducts his own investigation, gets sworn statements, autopsy reports, does a full report, comes back to the Oval Office, tells FDR the Soviets did it, and FDR flies off the hinges. He goes nuts. They know each other personally. Earl respects the the, the president because he's the president, but they've known each other for decades, and so he's very frank with him. Uh, anyway, what happens is uh, Earl says, well, I want to tell the press what I've learned, and I want to produce all these documents that I've given. The order for the report is suppressed. FDR then sends Earl to American Samoa, 7,000 miles out into the Pacific. But forbids him, forbids him to from say speaking. anything. Correct. And I have all the, first of all, I have everything I'm telling you, I have a document right. for. I've got a piece of paper from the archives for every single thing I've uttered on this show. Right. And so he forbids Earl from saying anything about what he's learned as his personal emissary and then sends him 7,000 miles out into the Pacific as the deputy military governor of Samoa. Former governor. Of former governor of Pennsylvania. Right. Former ambassador. Twice over. The man who and won he the obeys. Navy, the man who won the Navy Cross. Right. The man who funded FDR's campaign. And FDR, as a personal insight, this shows you the nasty, vindictive nature of FDR that he would screw one of his friends, again, so many friends for decades, sends him to Samoa. Yeah. I mean, this is, a, at this point, a 55-year-old Navy commander 
who's been around through two world wars, like I said before, you know, governor, ambassador. But what's the good news? The good news is FD, uh, uh, George Earl bounces back from this and goes on to become a leading anti-communist all through the late 40s up into the, actually into the uh, late 60s, early 70s. He's a leading anti-communist. He provides congressional testimony, his own personal story. This, the sad thing is George Earl should have airports named after him, bridges named after him. And he's because of FDR's efforts, he was virtually erased from American history. And that's why this book is so important. It's exiled emissary George H. Earl III, soldier, sailor, diplomat, governor, spy by our special guest, Chris Farrell. Uh, what should our balance sheet for FDR, how should it be adjusted given just this story, Chris? Well, if you consider that World War II could have ended 18 months earlier and we could have turned on and gone after the real enemy, the Soviet Union, the communists. Uh, Look, the the Germans in opposition to Hitler were hard, the, the hardcore element of the resistance uh, were largely very traditional Catholics yep. and very traditional capital L liberal in the best sense of the word. Which means anti-communist. Anti-communist uh, political types and professional military officers who abhorred Hitler. They knew right. what a monster he was. But they also had finished fighting on the Eastern Front and they knew what monsters the Soviets were. And they said, look, the only future for Western civilization, for all the common... I don't care that the Germans and the French go to war every 40 years. (laughs) That's not the point. Western civilization was being threatened by what communism offered. And that was the clear thinking of, let's have an armistice. You can can have accountability from the Nazis, but we have got to fight the Soviets. Yeah, because the Soviets are an existential threat. Difference. If you like America First, if you enjoy our special one-on-one discussions, may I ask you a personal favor? There is a a modern-day George H. Earl. His name is Rudy Giuliani. The left is trying to destroy him, not just cancel him. They want to bankrupt him. They want to take away his law licenses. Will we help him now is the question. He defeated five mafia families. He helped New York get back on its feet after 9-11. Please support our good friend, America's Mayor. Go to RudyGiulianiFreedomFund.com. That's Rudy. Giuliani Freedom Fund.com. Um, I, I was very happily uh, surprised by um, this story or receiving this story. And what I really would like to do for the last few minutes uh, here on One on One is to pull this rapidly up to 2021. Why is the story of one man's cancellation? despite his loyalty to the founding principles of this nation and his understanding of the threat to America, so important for all Americans to hear today, Chris. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's pure entertainment in, in the life of George Earl. You can, it's in a fascinating political story. It's a fascinating espionage story of what he did in Istanbul. It's amazing. But here's the real lesson. It is dangerous to be right when the government is wrong. That's a Voltaire quote. I opened the book with it. And that's really, here's a man with enormous political connections, enormous personal wealth, physical courage, a man who put himself in very great danger. 
a man who even had our allies, the MI6 officer in Istanbul, wanted him dead. I mean, he had we had friends who wanted him dead, dead. Uh, because he was brave enough and bold enough to do things that were terribly it, impolitic and not what is said or done, right. because he believed to do the right thing, and, and he had tremendous personal courage. Even as governor of Pennsylvania, he said, you know, I may make mistakes, but there'll always be mistakes of the head and not of the heart, right? His, he, his guts and his instinct were good and true. He was a man, enormous personal flaws. He was quite the womanizer and, you know, had all kinds of crazy adventures, but he never questioned his integrity and his honor. He may have been kind of a wild man, and he was, no apologies, but you knew he was true blue American, and you knew he'd fight like hell. And that's, that's the difference. He wasn't one of these characters with his finger in the air checking which, what's you know, currently in favor or not. And he had the guts to tell the truth, even when people didn't like it. He would go into the Oval Office and had two blowout fights with the President of the United States, FDR, who was hardly Mr. Charm, right? <laughs> and he confronted him. On two incredible points. One is we could have ended the war 18 months ago. And number two is the Soviets slaughtered 22,000 Poles out in this forest. And you're blaming the wrong people. And, of course, you know, it only took until 1986 for, for them to, admit. to finally admit it. Right. Uh, so Earl was correct all along, just like Earl was right on the communists all along. But nonetheless, you know, this is a brave guy who had the guts to do things that were not politically correct. Let me ask you the the most operational question um you may not want to hear the answer dear friends where are these people now i've lived here for what 13 years now i have worked with literally thousands of the best of the best at Fort Bragg, at Dam Neck, Little Creek, you name it, uh, law enforcement officers across the country, intel analysts, and everybody below the rank of, of major or lieutenant colonel impressed me. I mean, I have no complaints. And some of them, you know, with eight tours in Iraq or Afghanistan, are truly the best of the best. But in this city and in national politics, it is as if these people have died out, as if they're extinct or, or, or on the verge of extinction. I wasn't born here. I chose America. So let me ask you, Chris Farrell, as an American born here, is the republic safe? No. What is it going to take? I'm terrified to give you the answer to that question. Um only because of the level of incompetency involved. And so... Um, let, I want to hear the answer. Yeah. Let, let, let's start with the diagnosis. A lot of people come to me every single day, DMs, comments, emails, and they talk about these master plans for destroying America. Uh, there, there are vicious people with vicious ideologies in power. Sure. But there's also a, a, an admixture of huge levels of incompetence. Isn't that the case? Enormous incompetence. Okay. I mean, okay. our blind spots okay. and our uh, inattention is so enormous we fall in love with our our systems and our toys and our machines, and we. I mean, that, that's how you have, uh, you know, uh, 
less than 20 people organize the hijacking of three planes and fly them into buildings or out in the field in Pennsylvania. But the goal was a building, obviously. Uh, we, you know, we are uh, under-teched and we are underwhelmed by bad people with bad motives. Uh, with box cutters. Because we love our toys and our yeah. systems and our buttons and our gadgets. All right. So what's it going to take? The, the, what's the scary answer, Chris? Well, the horrific thing is, you know, uh, a city like San Diego or Tucson, you know, being uh, turned into, you know, a mirror or glass out in the desert. I mean, so after we're coming up to the 20th anniversary of 9-11, right. so an, it will take another mass casualty attack or a nuclear attack for us to get serious? Uh, God forbid. I mean, I pray, I literally, literally pray that that is not the case. Uh, but there's such childish stupidity, such dishonesty, such grandstanding and posturing and virtue signaling. And, you know, it, it, we this crazy navel gazing, we're going to turn ourselves, you know, critical race theory. We're going to be we're going to turn ourselves inside out or, you know, point zero three percent of the population that decides they want to self-identify as transgender, right. and the entire country has got to turn itself inside out over, I, I mean, I, I, God bless individual people in whatever their circumstances. I, I, that's not the point. I, what I'm saying is the United States of America has larger fundamental questions and issues going on. You know, 270,000 some odd people crossed the border in the last month. Yeah. And it's probably much bigger than that even. That's the official number. What, what are we doing? Here in this city, I, I remember viscerally it's kind of burnt on my cerebellum when we were discussing the Russia hoax, what happened to my boss for four years in the White House. And you said something about the FBI. And you said it's got to be dismantled. It does. Get, get the U.S. Marshals, dismantle it, and rebuild it with clean people. Correct. Um, I was kind of like taken aback. Then I pondered it, I ruminated, and then I've come to the conclusion that it basically has to be done with every agency, or, or they just have to be moved to Wyoming, whether it's you know dismantling DOE and AG, moving state to Nebraska. We have to have a tectonic change in this city. Here's a simple, fast one. Uh -huh. Treat Department of Justice attorneys as you would uh, Department of Defense commissioned officers. Every three years, they have to rotate. No more homesteading at Department of Justice. For decades. Right. So there's some people right. that have been sitting in the civil division for the last 15, 20, 30. No, 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 no. Right. You, we're treating you as a commissioned officer. And I mean, you can you, be posted to Alaska. Correct. Or if you're in the criminal division working on mafia stuff, great. Now you're going to go do patent work. And, and we're going to rotate people around. Nice. No more homesteading. Just like the military does. And if you don't like that, well, then you have an exciting career opportunity. You can go do something different somewhere. And I mean, what that, else? That, those are the those are the centers of power that have to be broken. What up. else has to happen? Well, what you just said about congratulations, the Interior Department is now headquartered in Missouri. Yeah, right. Go for it. Instead of this consolidation of power in the District of Columbia, it's insane. Uh, I like to ask, uh, you know questions of praxis to, to end these one-on-ones um what would you say um either is the most important thing people aren't paying attention to right now what is the thing people need to do that they aren't or what is your message to our millions of listeners and viewers uh don't lose hope okay that's one thing never 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 lose hope 
Uh, this country was, by, by George Washington, was committed and ordained to uh, be a country under the protection of our Lord. And so I believe that with my heart and soul. And we are unique in our status in that regard. And I think our country is truly blessed that way. So first of all, never, ever lose hope. Uh, pray for your country every single day. I don't care if your heart isn't in it, do it anyway. Pray for your country every single day. And then know that fundamentally the American people are much better than the miserable creeps that are appointed over them <laughs> as, their, as their leaders and administrators. Yeah. And whether they're elected or appointed or some sort of official capacity, the American people in their heart are a thousand times better than the leaders that we have over us. Fabulous message. The book is Exiled Emissary, George H. Earl of the Third, soldier, sailor, diplomat, governor, spy by our very special friend, Christopher J. Farrell. Get it today. It's better than Tom Clancy because it's real and its message is very, very apposite for what's happening to our country right now. Follow him and his colleagues at Judicial Watch on Twitter and please support them, judicialwatch.org. As ever, friends, keep your head on a swivel, watch your six, hold the line, never give up, never give in, and stay frosty. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.